So last week, we dealt with the first half of Romans 14, addressing this question of disputable matters in the church. And remember that the problem here is for these Jewish Christians in Rome who have put their faith in Jesus, Yeshua, the Messiah, they still have their life and their culture and their language, and it's deeply problematic to them that these Gentile Christians in Rome who have spread since the Jews came back from their six-year exile under the emperor Claudius, it is unthinkable that they would purchase food and wine from the marketplace, which had been offered up to, blessed for the purpose of idol worship, and that they would eat and drink and partake of these things. Now, these Gentile Christians can't see what the problem is. Paul has told them the good news. Indeed, Paul has spoken of the freedom of the gospel. All things are good. All things are made and created by a creator who has made them good. There is no secret sin molecule in the meat sacrificed and offered in the fermented beverage blessed. In fact, it's precisely Jesus who has the power to redeem those things. So that we don't have to walk around weak and, and, and enslaved by, you know, all, all the bad things in the boogeymen of the world. But Paul wants to revisit these ideas now. Last week was moving toward one another and this week pursuing peace with one another on these disputable matters. And I find myself, as always, every week wrestling with the text getting beat up in a good way. It's like holy jujitsu. Where's Rick McWilliams? It's like holy jujitsu with Jesus. It's like wrestling with God because, man, I see myself as the weaker brother passing judgment. Oh, I don't like how they do that. They're not holy enough. They're not good enough. They're not spiritual enough. And often as the stronger brother, using and therefore abusing my freedom to despise those who are weaker. Last, uh, last week after service, took me about 48.567 seconds after service to walk out these doors and completely forget what I had preached on. I walked out the doors. I saw my friend Rick. We were both doing a little cleanup, and I made a comment to him, honestly, about a certain situation that was pretty judgy. And Rick, a good brother, kind of looked at me like, didn't you just preach on that? It took me about four seconds, and it clicked and I went back to Rick and I said, will you forgive me? I just, I can't believe sometimes my own heart. 48 seconds before I was quick to pass judgment and despise because living out life together as a family is messy. We are messy people lifting up a great God. I'm going to see if I can make it a little bit longer this week and hopefully after church last an entire minute before I sin on my sermon. Remember that Romans chapter 12 begins a new movement in Romans. Four movements, four movements, and this is the final one, the fourth movement in the book. Paul in Romans 12.1 turns us to this idea of living in light of the mercies of God, relating to one another in the gospel. And Romans 14.1 through 15.7, this is before chapters and verse numbers, is one unit. And in this unit, Paul is dealing with how will we now, 
as a diverse community. Romans 12, we've we've been exhorted to love one another and walk in love. Romans 13, we submit to the governing authorities, as challenging as that can be. And in Romans 14 through 15, 7, how will we, a diverse community? In fact, let's just do a little survey here. Why don't you raise your hand? Why don't you, well, I don't know. Oh, too late now. Why don't you raise your hand if, you, if your background is in the PCA, Presbyterian Church in America? <laughs> Were you the only one? Was John the only one? Oh my gosh, and Jonah? Yeah, Jonah, right. You were born into it, brother. Um, I mean, with his background, Baptists and Methodists, and you know, for myself, I was raised in the, in the Roman church, and then kind of Lutheran, and then you know, megachurch. I mean, what did, just take that one thing to say nothing of our musical preferences, of our political preferences, of our preferences of dress and drink and driving. How will we as a diverse community live out our lives in Christ, in the death and resurrection of Christ, with sacrificial deference to one another? How can we do that? And I really think that's the big question that Paul's getting at here. It's a worldview question. Who are we really? Are we just individuals that live for our own rights and freedoms? Is this the only life you get? Matter, motion, time, and chance. You better live it as best you can. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, and too bad about the weaker people around you. Who are you? What are you for? Why has God put you here? Or to state it another way, what tune will we dance to? What tune will we dance to? What, what song will we sing? Will we dance to the tune of the world? Or will we dance to the tune of Jesus and his gospel? Because I think the world would tell us, and by the world I mean the powers and principalities of the world. Again, you're the center of the universe, you get one life, so be happy, have fun, and get yours. And if being moral and being good gets you that, then all the better. But that's what it's really about. The world would say, look, come on now, life is short. Strong people hang out with strong people. Physically strong people hang out together. Mentally strong people should hang out together in the week. Gosh, I don't know. I'm sorry. I'd try harder. Suck it up, buttercup. I, I mean, sorry about your weakness, but work on it. Take some responsibility. The, the world is covenantally oriented. Do this and you will live. Do it not and you will die. I'm, I'm sorry, young man and young woman, but your decisions have real consequences. We can't have the weak and the strong in in one place. We certainly can't have people that lean left or lean right in one place. And some of you aren't just leaning to either side. You've fallen off the cliff. I follow you on social media, as I said last week. No, there's too much division in a church. Too much division. I mean, your family has division, but it's a smaller unit. You're bound by blood. Well, guess what? This might be a bigger unit, but we're still bound by blood. The blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our helper, our friend. And so we don't need to dance to the world's tune that says, no, there's too much division for church people to really be fully known and fully loved before God and each other. To not be fake, to not put on airs, 
but to really be known in our weakness and messiness and strength and brokenness and glory and truly deeply still love one another. We don't need to dance to the world's tune. Indeed, the church must dance to a different tune. We must sing a new song. And that's why Paul spends so much time, and we will, can you believe it? Three sermons on this, on this bit of Romans 14 through the first half of 15. Paul here is reiterating much of what we heard last week, apparently because we need to hear it again. Last week moved toward one another, and this week the main point is this. Pursue peace. In your strength or your weakness, pursue peace. If you are strong and mature, then serve. If you are weak, then pursue the gospel so that you might grow. All of us in Christ are called where we are at to not judge one another, but to walk in love together. So pursue peace. That's the main point. I'm going to take it in three ways. Let me tell you outliners. Number one, how shall we pursue peace? Two, what are the perils, the challenges of pursuing this peace? Because it is not a happy, clappy Sunday school, Jesus is the answer sort of thing. And lastly, I, I think really the, the capstone to this is why? Why would we do this? If there's not more joy, more becoming fully human in who we are meant to be in Christ, then why? What a, not just a waste of time, but a painful waste of time. So first, how shall we pursue peace? And here I think Paul does two things. He shows us both the form of pursuing peace and then what it means to function in that. He gives us a theological foundation and then practical steps to pursuit. We are to be shaped by this good news of the gospel in both how we are formed to pursue peace and how we function. And this applies to the weak and the strong. So when I hear the main point, right, Pursue peace, everybody, especially on disputable matters. You know, I still have questions. <laughs> I have questions that well up within my own heart that come from my own struggles. Okay, well, I'll pursue peace, but at the end of the day, who wins, right? Like, who wins, the weak or the strong? Because if I'm right, which I'm usually right about most things, especially in marriage, obviously, when I'm right and I'm, you know, Frequently right. It, I mean, that's, okay, I'll pursue peace, but kind of who wins in the end? The weak or the strong? Because there's a fear here that, that if those who are strong and mature have to, have to give up their strength to uphold and uplift the weak, I mean, I, the last thing I want is to, to live in a community that's, uh, you know, the, the tyranny of the weak is in play. And at the same time, we, we don't want to be in a place where the strong are flouting it and despising those who are in need. And so how does this protect us then from having a public persona where we kind of smile and nod and we're, we're happy with the people that really frustrate us, but yet in private and in our hearts, we know that's not true. How does Paul's principle here provide a way of escape from fakeness and at the same time give both weak and strong real and growing freedom in Christ? These are my questions. And I think that the outline of the answer is this. It's easy to focus on the outward things, especially on disputable matters. And because it's easy to focus on the outward and what we can see and taste and touch and control, 
you know, well, I don't know. Let's, let's look at this piece of meat. Was it, was it offered up to the false gods? You know, well, if you're going to judge me about it, then I'm not going to have my steak while you're nearby. And we're not going to hang out. And I'm not going to invite you over to my house for dinner. It's easy to focus on the outward, on food and drink and rules. And for the church to go, you know what we need to do about this is we need a policy. We need a policy about food and drink and who and when and where and why and exactly how we're allowed to do it and when we're supposed to do it and how it's going to work. Now, by all means, we certainly need policies on certain things. There's nothing wrong with that. But on disputable matters, it's not a matter of the outward, but the heart of trusting Christ and in Christ learning to love and trust one another. And that's why I love 1 Samuel 15, 7. 16, 7, I'm sorry. So many of you are familiar with this passage, but I mean, Saul just looks like he has it all. King Saul looks like he has it all together. He's strong and he's tall and he's good looking and he's got great sport coats like me and John and, you know, he just looks kind of kingly. And all of a sudden the shepherd boy comes around and Samuel starts to talk all this gibberish about anointing this weakling little shepherd boy who, you know, oh, David had great faith. Yeah, King Saul, give me your armor. I'll fight, I'll fight Goliath. But we would all look at that and go, that's not faith. That's called youthful stupidity. What are you talking about? This little kid wants king armor and he's going to go out and fight a giant? Ridiculous and foolish. And, you, you know, you're, you're young, David, and so your, your frontal lobe isn't fully developed yet. You don't realize that you're actually not only stupid, but you're putting yourself in harm's way because you're going to be killed in a minute. And what does the Lord say to the prophet? He says, look, man looks to the outward appearance, but God looks to the heart. So when it comes to disputable matters and food and drink and what's allowed and not allowed, God wants to get us to our hearts. And that's why our form is so important here. That's why Paul begins with the therefore. Therefore points us back to Romans 14, 12, and 13, where Paul quotes Isaiah 45. He says that every knee will bow before God, everyone will give an account for themselves. Paul says, strong, don't, don't despise. Weak, don't judge. You take care of you. We don't need sin police in the church, remember? What we need is, we have enough stuff going on in our own life, especially on disputable matters, to deal with that. You give an account to God for yourself, not others. And so for us to live this thing out, we must be formed. And founded on the grace of God. In that way, the therefore doesn't just point us back to that few verses prior in Romans 14, but all of Romans 1 through 11, where Paul is encouraging us in the way that we live out life together and love each other and die to ourselves for the sake of one another so that the body of Christ might be whole and healthy and useful to meet your needs and mine and the needs of this city. Paul's pointing us all the way back to the gospel he's preached. That we are not justified by works, but by faith alone in Christ alone. I love the song we sang. It's one of my favorites, the love of God. Could we with ink the ocean fill? And if all the skies were made of parchment, were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. The only hope we have of being different than a glorified country club 
The only hope we have is this gospel of the grace of God. That yes, we will give an account for ourselves, but oh, the mercies of God. Christ has already accounted for you. Christ has already counted up every sin and borne it on the cross for you so that our accounting is us being counted in Christ, hidden with Christ in God. So that our truest freedom now, our truest Christian liberty, is the declaration that it is finished. To be formed by this is the hope that we have. To live in sacrificial deference to one another. I love this quote from a pastor, Stephen Lawson. He puts it this way. The new birth, the new creation in Christ is not merely a makeover. No, instead the new birth is a complete takeover of your entire life. So we are formed by the gospel, and that brings us now to the practicality of how we function in this gospel together. Paul's point is this. It is vital for each of us to make up our minds and have a clear conscience on disputable matters. Indeed, you have Christian liberty, and that liberty is to be protected. We're getting close here to the the Sunday after all, Hallow's Eve, when the little urchins Go out as Martin Luther told them to go and, you know, mock the devil who's ultimately powerless. The next Sunday after that is Reformation Sunday, and we gather to remember what those reformers fought for, precisely this. We have freedom and liberty in Christ because no rule, no man, no leader of the church, no pastor, no counsel, no letter can bind your conscience except for the Word of God. Of course, now we we take that for granted, but I'm glad that that was fought for. So, make up your mind. Have a clear conscience biblically in submission to the Word of God and nothing else on disputable matters. It is vital to make up your mind on these things. And it is vital that once you have, you make your primary concern your neighbor. Do you see how that works? Did you get that? It is vital that you make up your mind and have a clear conscience before God under the scriptures on disputable matters. Some of you say, you know what? I I don't care if the meat that I buy at Whole Foods was, you know, sacrificed on the altars of a thousand hippies with incense. I, I don't care. That might even be a realistic thing. You know, God made cows. He made them good and There's no amount of hippie voodoo that's going to change the molecular construction of the meat, and I like a good steak, and I want it grass-fed, so no problem. And there's some of you who may say, you know, I I just don't feel comfortable with that. It scandalizes me. It it damages my conscience. It, It leads me into sin because if you do something that you know will sear your conscience, if you do it knowing you shouldn't do it, it's sin. Unless it comes from faith and trust It's sin, and that's why Paul says to the stronger brother, don't lead your younger brothers, your weaker brothers, down that path. So make up your mind and have a clear conscience. But once you do, your primary concern is for your neighbor. Paul's supreme desire in this passage is for our good freedoms to not be unrestrained by better love. 
That to love our neighbors is difficult, but that is the entire point of our being free in Christ. Freedom doesn't mean I can do whatever I want whenever I want, because I am the rugged, pioneering individual. Freedom in Christ, indeed, the entire concept of freedom biblically, is necessarily about community. It's necessarily about us being free as individuals as we are free to serve and be a part of a greater body. So make up your mind. Have a clear conscience under the word of God concerning disputable matters. And then make your primary concern your neighbor. This is what Paul means when he says don't put a stumbling block in front of your neighbor. And I think we need to be really careful here. Because this is a deeply abused text. Don't put a stumbling block in front of your neighbor means I can't do the stuff I want to do. And again, Paul even uses eating and drinking wine. And that's kind of a hot button issue in our day and age and culture. And yet remember, Paul is not speaking at all about the potency of the fermented beverage or the fat content of the food. He's not talking about gluttony and drunkenness here. He's talking about a seared conscience of Jewish Christians because they're eating meat and drinking wine that had been probably involved, at least in the blessing, of idolatry. So what does a stumbling block mean? Well, the word is, it's an Old Testament word. It's it's used frequently in the Old Testament. It's almost always negative, and it always pertains, almost always pertains, to sin, to stumbling over something that would cause one to sin. In fact, it's interesting because in the Old Testament, it's frequently used by the prophets to rebuke Israel, Isaiah and Ezekiel in particular, saying, you are stumbling over the stumbling stone here, folks, in your pride, in your stiff-neckedness, in your unwillingness to, to trust the faithfulness of God and do things your own way. In Leviticus 19, probably the most famous usage of the stumbling block text in the Old Testament. Leviticus 19 is kind of the the pinnacle of the book of Leviticus, your favorite book and mine. But Leviticus is actually really wonderful, and the author of Leviticus brings the book to this sort of covenantal climax. The word Yahweh is used more times in Leviticus 19 than any other chapter. And it's this giving of the moral law, do these good and righteous things because Yahweh Because God is your Savior and your Lord and your Redeemer. And it's right in there, Leviticus 19.14, that the author says, Do not put a stumbling block before the blind. Which is an example that they, they use to emphasize wickedness. I mean, can you think of anything more wicked? That perhaps if you you were out in Santa Fe and you saw someone who was visually impaired or perhaps impaired in another way, and you and your, your buddies, and you know, ah, this will be funny, let's get it, let's put it on YouTube. And you rolled a big stone in front of them and watched them fall and hurt themselves. That'd be horrible. It, it's wicked. And here's what Paul's saying. Look, have your freedom about food. Have your freedom about drink. But don't care about those things more than love of neighbor. Don't make your freedom about food and your freedom about drink more important than removing those obstacles from younger and weaker brothers and sisters so that they might walk without stumbling and grow toward Christ. And of course this can be abused. So on the one hand, the strong need to die to themselves. On the other hand, the weak need to not go, all right, sweet, we've got the advantage. It's all about the weak. It's all about the minority. It's all about what we need. 
and create a situation of tyranny. No. But Paul's point is this, that a weaker brother might be led into sin, even on disputable matters, unless those who are truly strong in Christ show up to care. And so if you are strong, if you are mature in the Lord, if you can last more than 48.5 seconds after the sermon, then indifference is not an option allowed to us. You've heard the quote before from Ellie Weitzel, the, the great Jewish survivor of the Holocaust who wrote some really wonderful books, and that book that most of us read as kids, Night, about his experience in the concentration camps. And he's, he's quoted as saying something that I find so powerful, that, the, that there's something even worse than hate, something even more devious and demonic than hate. And that is when those who are strong have the opportunity to do so are indifferent to help those who are weak. Indifference is worse than hate because at least hate takes intention and action and it's exhausting. Indifference, looking at your weaker brother and going, you know, I just don't care. You're dead to me. Is worse than hate. So strong, if you're strong, if you're mature, Paul says, we need to decide. He says it's an act of the will. It's a choice. It's a thing of volition. We must decide in Christ to not destroy those who are weak. Destroy is a loaded word here in the Greek. Again, hearkening back to all these Old Testament ideas. It's not just hurt someone's feelings, okay? Remember, Paul is dealing with this church in Rome, Jews and Gentiles. How will they be reconciled in Christ? It's not just a matter of their feelings being hurt. Destroy in the Old Testament, especially in Deuteronomy 28, go back and fact check me, is used in the context of someone, a brother or sister, being cut off from the covenant community. It's as if the weak person is saying, because of the exercise of the strong's freedom, I have no place here. Oh, you guys, there's nothing sadder than that. I see it in my own heart. Lord, have mercy. There's nothing sadder than us in our strength and maturity and freedom. Using that freedom in such a way, with such indifference and such lack of care for our weaker brothers and sisters, that what they feel communicated about that is, there's no place for me here in this covenant community. I'm too weak. I'm too needy. I'm not enough. That is the opposite of the gospel. So if you're mature, here's Paul's the crescendo of his point. If you're mature, oh, please do exercise your good judgment. It's funny. I mean, N.T. Wright comments on this passage and even says that, that Paul's being a bit satirical here. It's the old school Pauline Babylon B right here. He goes, oh, okay, the strong ones, smart ones, religious ones. You want to exercise your, your freedom and your right judgment by all means. But as you do so, do this. Choose your family in Christ over the food on your table. you smart, strong, and mature. Great. Exercise your judgment by all means. But choose family over food. Choose your brothers and your sisters over your stomach. And this is really hard to do. The perils of pursuing our peace have to do with our own idols including those 2019 idols about what it means 
that I am free. And I can do what I want, and you can't tell me what I'm allowed to do because I get life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And that's true. You do get those things. But if you're a Christian, your ultimate identity isn't in those things. It's not in your music. It's not in your food. It's not in your political party. It's not in the way you dress. Your ultimate identity is in Christ. And so every idea about freedom and living freedom out in community comes under the glory of Jesus. In fact, Paul says to the strong, there are occasions when you are going to need to hold back. Oh, but I don't want to. This weak person should grow up. Paul says, man, if you think that way, maybe you're not as strong as you think you are. There are occasions when you will need to hold back. If you're unwilling to do that, if you're unwilling to decide for the gospel, for the weaker brother, maybe you're not that strong. Why? Paul tells us. Because if you're not willing to hold back your strength to raise up the weak in Christ, maybe you're owned by a deeper desire than the kingdom of God. Maybe there's some desire for food or for drink or for some other preference or disputable matter that has a tighter grip on you than what it means to live out the life of Jesus, who didn't look down on the weak and despise them, but came down in condescension Our confession says Jesus was humiliated in his birth, in his life, and especially in his death. He was made utterly low and weak so that he might come to the weak and make them strong. If we're not willing to do that, then perhaps we have an idol that matters more to us than the love of Christ for our brothers and sisters. Perhaps we are owned by a deeper desire. So why do we pursue this peace? We'll end here. We're not to be hung up on disputable matters because there are bigger things. And here's what I want. I want our love for each other, especially across the lines of disputable matters, to go viral in this city. I want them to go viral. I want this city, our our city that we love, our friends and neighbors in Santa Fe that we love to go, whoa, what the heck is that? Click the share button. I haven't seen that before. The most Romans 14 thing I saw all week, the most Romans 14 thing I saw all week was this little video that's been circulating online. I'll bet a handful of you have seen it. It's a video from a women's soccer game a world championship women's soccer game that was being played in Amman, Jordan. Anyone see this video? All right. Guys got to nerd out a little bit more. Okay? And in this video, two women's soccer teams are playing, both Arab teams. And all of a sudden, there's a woman soccer player whose head covering, her hijab, begins to slip off her hair. Now, Paul talks about head coverings in the New Testament. There's a rich tradition of head coverings in the Christian church. It's a disputable matter. It's a disputable matter. And so here's this woman on the soccer field, middle of the game, and it starts to slip off. All of a sudden, she falls to the ground in shame and to protect herself. And what happens? The other team stops playing. The other team stops playing. Idiots. That's when you could score a goal. You're down a player. It's like hockey. Someone's in the box. I mean, take the ball and go. They stop playing. And five women from the other team gather around 
this girl, she falls to the ground. They gather around her. They cover her. They encircle her. They pursue her. And they allow her time to fix her head covering. They pursue peace. And you know what happens when we do that as a church? When we live that out in our own lives, the world sees and it goes viral. The world sees and it goes viral. We don't need to dance to the tune of the world. Oh man, she fell. Great. Go score a goal. Instead, we can sing a new song. We can dance to a new tune. We can be formed by the gospel and function in a way that we lift one another up. Yes, there are perils. Despising and judging. Tyranny and indifference to be avoided. But in Christ, in Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, we truly can pursue peace for one another on these things. And here's the greatest story of all. As we do, as we do pursue peace for one another, you will find your joy, your purpose, greater glories than food or drink. And the world that is watching will know that our God is real by the way that we love one another. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your good word to us. Let us admit to you right now, honestly, as we pray, let us admit that we are people of extremes. We either love all the rules or we lack rules. We err in our hearts toward law or license. We do. We're either like the Gentiles in Galatia who are trying to add to the gospel and add more Jewishness, or we're like the Gentiles in Rome who seem to not care. Lord, that's us. That's our oscillating heart. So Jesus, I am so thankful that you, you didn't come for law and rules, but to fulfill the law. To fulfill the law for our hearts. To bring us to yourself. And I thank you for that. So now as we reflect and as we come to this table, Jesus, would you nourish us with the heavenly food that will prepare us for the hard and beautiful and glorious and difficult and strenuous work of dying to ourselves in sacrificial deference on these disputable matters. So we might be a healthy body, active, and blessing the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.